The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Dr. Klaus Heinemann joins the program today to discuss his life and work as a scientist, physicist, and author. Since emigrating to the United States from Germany in the post-war years, he has become distinguished for dedication in the area of science and physics. He talks today of the life-changing events through the study of orbs and his book, The Orbs Project. Dr. Klaus Heinemann, welcome to you again for this second in the series of our programs together. Thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your program. I really enjoyed our discussion yesterday. Well, thank you. Likewise. I would just like to review the first program for the sake of our listeners from the first set of information that we discussed about your background and life thus far. We did talk about uh, Dr. Harry and Amelia Rathburn and their huge impact on you, as we did also talk about the Reverend Dr. Ron Roth and your journey uh, after departing from Germany in the post-war years to come to America and to work in your very valuable work and career. And we completed the program last time prior to really establishing the theories of the ORB project by me posing the question to you on the atomic makeup of any organism, any creation in this world. And I had suggested to you that uh, is there any correlation between the symmetry uh, that those would talk about in any object, any creation in the atomic makeup uh, versus the uh, the orb makeup that you have referred to? Yes, and I believe I answered in principle uh, with the simple words, two words, not really. And But let me explain uh, or expand on this, if I may. I think what we're seeing here is uh, the adaption of beings uh, that have a high degree of consciousness to circumstances. And the circumstances that they see is who is the person who will see me photographed on their film or on their, on their, um, in, in their camera? Is it a person who is kind of prone to seeing faces? Well, then they will be shown as faces. Is it a person who will, uh, is more mystically inclined in any way? Maybe then they will show up in the form of a mandala. Or is it a doctor, medical person? Then they might show up in something that looks like cells. Or is it an electrical engineer or something like that? And then they will show up as in a pattern similar to circuit boards. So in other words, this is not really the same thing as what you're referring to, but it's something, something much more personal and something much more on, a, on, a, on the level of consciousness and consciousness on both sides of the spectrum. And this is the one thing that is so difficult to grasp for people in general that orbs, which are emanations 
from something higher, and that that higher that they are emanations from are spirit beings that have a high degree of consciousness. I'd like to refer to the co-author of your book, The All Project, Dr. Mihal Ledwith, and his statement, it's certainly the case that they can often be photographed best at places of psychic significance. They definitely seem drawn to spiritual-type gatherings, and I believe that you found that to be the case indeed when you first started photographing these orbs and actually established them in your digital photographs. That is correct. But again, the, what we found afterwards almost supersedes that. What we found afterwards is that they really show up totally independent of a particular locality and totally dependent on the person who wants to see them, who wants to photograph them, and where they want to be seen. So if that person travels in an airplane, they would show up in an airplane. If they travel on a cruise ship, they show up on a cruise ship. If they happen to be in a bar, they show up in a bar. It, it, so it, it's not really any one particular location that is any more prone to seeing orbs than any other. I would like to clarify, if I may, however, going back earlier in the conversation, that what you are saying is that it is very dependent upon the person who is experiencing the orb. It's dependent upon their makeup, them as a person, their, their background, their experiences as to how the orb itself will appear to them. Yes, and it's not, not very different from our phone conversation here, the way I see that. It, my, your questions are in a certain in a certain area my answers are in a certain way and and they are geared to the question <clears throat> and they are geared to uh, the possible audience so these orbs are appearing to an audience and they they are conscious they know why they are appearing they have a message and with that they tailor their appearance and the way they show up and the location and all of this to the person who sees them, that they can maximize the effect. So therefore, when we see these wonderful photographs that you have taken that, uh, and many have taken across the world now, Correct. we are looking at photographs of orbs that are relative to the person who took the photograph or to the people who were in the environment at the time. And therefore, as a viewer of those photographs, there is not necessarily a significance to them. They are actually looking at something that is affecting somebody else's life that was present at that stage. Yes and no. It could be that the message is strictly directed at the viewer. If it is a photograph, it could be that the message is directed to the person taking the photograph. That's very often the case. It could also be that it's directed at the person of whom the photograph is taken. Or it could be a message to the general public at large. There, I think all of these are possible. And with a little bit of discernment, one can often find out which of these is the case. What is the extent today 
of the photographs that have been taken across the world? What is the extent to which bodies have been formed, uh, experts have been formed to uh, analyze this in a, in a very deep method? How has that evolved over the years since you first discovered this? Yeah, well, we, we have to know that this is really, everything is, over the years, is maybe two, three, four, maybe five years not much longer than that. So we are still in the infancy of that. And in many ways, many people, by far the majority of people who are seeing orbs, are just fascinated by the fact that they see an orb or that they see orbs. And they are not yet really asking the questions, what does that mean? Is, it, is there anything that this means to me or to anybody else? Or, you know, what is the meaning behind all of that? And my wife and I actually got into this subject quite a bit, and we just recently completed a, a, a new book with this particular subject, Orbs, What is Their Message? What is Their Mission? And um, this book is, will be coming out in the Hay House, uh, uh, by Hay House in August of this year. Is there a divine intervention in any way? Uh, clearly, it is the onset of digital photography that has allowed to a great extent the the availability of the orbs yes. to us uh, to our human eyes but is it perhaps in your mind some sort of divine intervention at this stage in the world's evolution i think it is a a very welcome opportunity that has never been there before and that is that now exists with this new technology of uh, photography, of, of digital photography, for them to make themselves available. In, in my mind, if I may actually expand a little bit on this, this is quite phenomenal. If you really think about it, to appear as an orb on a photograph, it takes very, very little energy. This other realm that we are talking about is also an energetic realm but it is very likely one where energy is measured in totally different uh, quantities. What is, uh, what is very little energy in our realm may be a lot in theirs. And so to come up with something that requires a significant amount of energy for us to notice is very difficult for them. And that may be the reason why we haven't really so far before the orb seen um, these beings uh, as they affect our reality very clearly. Let me give you this, this one example here. Of course. I believe that it takes about 1,000 photons to, to make an image of an orb uh, so that you can see it in, your, in, in a photograph. Now, 1,000 photons uh, is such a little energy that you, if you picture 100 billion, billion, times the energy of 1,000 photons, then you have about the energy that would keep an average 100-watt light bulb lit for one second. 100 billion, billion times. It is, it is uh, 10 to the 18th times. It's, it's an enormously small amount of, of energy. Now, is there any 
association or correlation in the methodology of this with the faster shutter speeds that we have available to us now, not only with just digital cameras, conventional mm. cameras have had that for many years, but yes. has that assisted in, in availing these orbs? No, it's not the shutter speed. It is uh, more, much more it's the flash than it is the shutter speed. Now, we've had shutter speeds of, uh, like, I have a, <laughs> I have a Leica camera that is, uh, was built in 1935, got it from my father, and, and that has a shutter speed of one, one, 1,500 uh, already at that time. So it, that's not it. It really is the, it's the flash. Now, the flash itself has a duration of only approximately one thousandth of a second. So that is very equivalent to such a short shutter speed. So in that sense, you're correct. Let's talk about, if we may, the advent of digital photography. I remember as a uh, photographer myself back in 1991, when one had to transfer from using traditional materials to digital photography. What is it that the digital image, beyond what you have explained here, provides? Now, celluloid, and I'm interested that uh, there have been occasions uh, where photographs have been taken using celluloid cameras and celluloid materials, and, and in actual fact the orbs have appeared. But what is it about the the uh, digital technology that appears to be so much more sensitive to low energy light? Yeah, uh, th that of course is a good question. And uh, but let me first go and re-emphasize what you just said: that there are people who have seen orbs in, in on regular celluloid film. For example, my good friend Ed Vos in in the Netherlands. Uh, he is a professional photographer. And he has seen hundreds and hundreds of pictures on celluloid film. Now, the, the main difference between orbs on film and orbs on individual cameras is, and there are three differences. One is the higher sensitivity of digital cameras, much higher, up to uh, the sensitivity uh, to individual photons. And then the possibility of electronic image processing. And finally, and probably most significantly, the cost and the convenience. It costs nothing to shoot X numbers of digital photos, because if you don't like them, you discard them, and you, you can start all over. Uh, it costs a significant amount of money, at least to the average person, to take regular celluloid film camera uh, photos. And then, of course, you, you have an instant viewing possibility with the digital camera. And on your celluloid camera, you, you have to wait until the film is developed, and it all takes time. Yes. And so this, this is a real convenience factor. Also very significant of that is that you can electronically image process these uh, with digital images, and you cannot do that in the other case. This image processing is a very legitimate way of increasing, for example, the contrast of an orb uh, so that you can really see it much better. You would not have that possibility in a regular camera. I mean, you could take some, some photo paper and just push it a little bit. I mean, I've done 
lots of, of this kind of developing of pictures in, in dark rooms in my early days. You're pushing and pulling the... Yeah, you can, you can contrast enhanced, enhanced, but it's difficult and, you know, it's, it's cumbersome and not nearly as effective as what you can do in digital photography. Let me ask this, if I may. Understanding that using the digital equipment... I totally agree with you. Since the advent of digital photography uh, accessible to people around the world, it's made it so much easier to get an instant image on the back of your camera. Is there any case that you have found where a picture has been taken by somebody with uh, the knowledge that they know that orbs are there for some intuitive reason and with that orbs actually appear in the image yes this is how they normally are, are done if i understand your question correctly and you hear by the answer if i did there it appears to be a commonly accepted rule that if you are a serious photographer of orbs that your quote yield unquote of orbs in pictures increases somewhere around a hundredfold between you know, the first orb picture and, and after a while when, when you are kind of uh, really into it. So in other words, the photographer is going out with the prime objective and the knowledge that orbs are there for some reason so that the photographer, that the human being, is aware in his, his mind that, yes. that they are there and he is specifically taking that photograph for that reason. That is correct. No. That is correct. And I actually know a person, or a couple of people actually, who can see orbs, which is something that neither my wife nor myself can do, and probably most people cannot see them, but some people can. And so in that case, they just nudge me and say, hey, there is one, take a photo. And I did that, and there was a big orb in the photo. I'd like to refer back to a statement that you made, and I do hope that I'm correct, and if I'm not, please correct me. Uh, until now, there has been a huge amount of anecdotal evidence that the spirit world exists. I believe it's no longer anecdotal. Thanks to digital photography, we can see it for the first time. Can we talk about that spiritual world that you refer to there, but more importantly, defining the paranormal intelligence that you talk about? Yeah, yeah, okay, uh, I'd, I'd love to. This spiritual word, I mean, the word spiritual is is something that is very used, but I, I'm just simply using it because there really isn't something much better available. What I mean with that is that we are talking about a realm where an intelligence Reigns that is beyond our current understanding, beyond our normal intelligence. People, I mean, this this is the spiritual as people normally look at this. There has been certain numbers, small numbers of people, who have had the privilege of getting direct messages from that realm that indicate to these people that that realm is very real. But the rest of us who do not have that, uh, that gift or this, this uh, ability to distinguish that, for, for those of us, it's just hearsay. For example, um, you may have heard of the apparitions 
in uh, Medjugorje. That's a small town in, in what used to be Yugoslavia, uh, what, which I guess is now Croatia. And uh, in the 1980s, what appeared to be the Holy Mother, Mother Mary, appeared to a bunch of children between 10 and 20 years of age in a church. And she appeared to these children in such a way that the children just saw her and heard her and talked to her and had a direct experience of this spiritual entity talking to them. And everybody else who saw these children just just was there a bystander. They, they saw something, they experienced, they heard the children, they saw that they had an experience, but they did not experience it themselves. That is hearsay. So if I was there, for me, the experience would have been hearsay. Now, for me, I would have believed it probably to a large extent because I now have developed an antenna to distinguish between what kind of hearsay may have some meaning behind it and what doesn't, and I probably would have seen that meaning behind it. But only for about 40 children, this was a lot more than hearsay. All the rest is just simply not real, or, or they can make an argument it is not real. That leads me into the statement that I believe you made. There is no doubt in my mind that the orbs may well be one of the most significant outside of this reality phenomena. I'd yes. like a clarification on that, if I may, a definition of that outside of this reality uh, by telling me what reality we are sitting in and what reality the orbs are in. Yeah, yeah. Good questions. This, whatever we perceive in physics and in astronomy and, and all of this, as our reality, the Earth, the solar system, the entire rest of the universe, of the physical universe, this is all within and not yet outside of it. Outside of it, in my mind, is the realm of consciousness. It's the realm of something that cannot be measured with any standard physical means. So, in other words, the orbs are not necessarily human? No, they are not human. They are also, in my mind, not extraterrestrials or anything like that. They are from a different realm, from a realm that is not physical. Now, in very modern physics, we don't make the distinction anymore. We just simply say everything, even if we extrapolate this way beyond the physical, it's still the physical reality. And if we do that, of course, then the orbs are part of that reality. I guess that I'm returning, and sorry to interrupt, I yes. guess that I'm returning to this word that we hear so much these days, spiritual. Getting a clarification on that, then the orbs are not necessarily spiritual or people who have necessarily passed. It's something much more profound, much deeper than that. I think it is much more profound and much deeper. It could very well be that some of them are spirits that have a relationship with diseased individuals in this realm. That could be the case, but it may be the exception rather than the rule. It could be all of the above. I picture this reality, this part of reality that is spiritual, that is 
that is in the realm of, of consciousness, that is outside of our physical. I picture that part of reality as having as many species, as many varieties of species as our world has. So there is a huge, a huge variation of consciousness in that realm. I think that surely if these are part of our universe, they are part and parcel of our reality, whether or not we can see it, is it is reality, is it not? And perhaps yes. as your work expands and the work of others expand, the orbs that we discuss here, although they may not be visible to the eye, they may one day become one reality to yes. all of us. They may very... These, these orbs as such may be found out, we, we may be able to find out how they come about. And yes, they are evidence of an energetic evidence. They are evidence of an energy. But I do believe that these orbs are not the entities in and by themselves that we are talking about. I believe that they are just emanations from them. Could you explain that for me? Yes. The best picture that I always use for that is if you just figure yourself standing in a pitch-dark room and there are other people in, in that room and they want to see you and they can't because it's dark. And now you have a flashlight in your hand and then you turn that flashlight on and all of a sudden these people see that flashlight. And that flashlight is in a way, an emanation from you, because you totally control it. You can direct it to wherever you want to shine it, turn it on and off, you can do whatever you want to do with it. Yet, it is not you. You are much greater. You are something much more elaborate than the flashlight is. The people see the flashlight, the orb, but not the real entity, the real being that's behind it. This takes me to the... Uh quotation from the wonderful Professor Tiller, what we see with our physical eyes comprises less than 10% of the known universe. This is because <laughs> human vision operates only within a limited range of the electromagnetic spectrum. For instance, we cannot see radio waves, which carry huge amounts of information, yet we know they exist. Correct. Uh, can you comment on that statement yeah, made, yeah. made by Professor Tiller, please? Yeah, first, first, he is, he is, <laughs> you, you call him wonderful, I call him renowned, maybe that would be a better way of describing him. <laughs> he is just, he is just a, a very distinguished theoretical physicist and highly, highly distinguished. I'm not so sure if he actually authored that particular statement, but he certain, he certainly would not put the percentage numbers onto it. And, and the rest he might have said. Um, I don't think that we're talking about 10%. I don't think we would be talking about 1%. I think we are talking about an infinitesimal small amount, a non-definable small fraction, very, very small fraction that we see or measure or hear compared to that magnitude of reality that is that exists. In, in comparison to that. So now, seeing all of that, the, the, the statement about the radio waves, that is very clearly a very good statement. There we know, because we can make these radio waves, we know how they come about, and yet we cannot see them. 
We really are talking about a huge myriad of permutations, are we not? We're talking yeah. about orbs that possibly we can define as spiritual. Uh, we are talking about orbs that are not necessarily in this world, but perhaps of this world. And then we're talking about the person behind that camera, or maybe one day in the future who will not need a camera indeed to see these orbs, and their experience, their pain, their life's journey. There are so many permutations to consider here. How do you build up that model in your work? How do you chart this with benchmarks to be able to figure out what to look at, what to prioritize, and what to not really take into your calculations and your thought process? Yeah, <laughs> very good question. Uh, one of the things that I've come to see is that no matter what frame I make or what box I make to to put something in, it is always too small. That is what I have come to respect in a way, that this reality that we are part of is such a huge thing. You cannot begin to describe it because it is always more than what you, what you describe, what you see. In a way, God, if you use the word, this three-letter word, is much more than whatever you might put into it. With that said... I was very, very interested in a short video piece from Dr. Michal Ledwith, who talked about that, who said that we see God as a man with a white beard floating on clouds. And he, he actually indicated that God is much more than that. He's, yeah. he's all-powerful and so much more than so many people picture him to be. What is this on your own mind what is this on your own soul? How, how does this constantly, day by day, change you as a human being? You're, you're clearly a scientist who's, who looks for strong evidence, who works by rules and calculations, which, could I suggest, may have changed somewhat since you've uncovered these orbs to make you more of a fluid, flexible thinker. But how, how is your life changing now with this? It's prioritization of things, plans, of projects has changed. I am now much more interested in things that have to do with consciousness, that have to do with learning what there is behind all this. What, what, this, what is this whole thing all about? What is it that we are part of? Um, we are beings living in a very small fraction of time and having the potential of, in a way, becoming conscious and, in a way, increasing consciousness. So this whole aspect of consciousness, and this almost goes back to uh, the prior book that we talked about, um, Expanding Perception. My real interest lies in the understanding of what consciousness is and in the understanding of this, this whole plan. Because consciousness is something that is non-physical, that once produced will remain, that is not affected by time and space in any way. 
So as soon as you think something, as soon as you, quote, produce, unquote, a little bit of consciousness, this will, um, this will dissipate into the universe and will be available there for all times to be tapped into, just like radio waves in a way. So this consciousness aspect has always been intriguing to me. What is this all about? What are we doing? And when I look at this big plan, uh, or when I look at, at what people define God to be, then I come to the conclusion that although you and I are infinitesimal small beings in a huge universe and in a huge everything there is, although that is the case, we are producing consciousness, and as such, we are adding to the very existence that God is, that we define God to be. Is that a measure of our individual heart, soul, our mind, our experience, our pain, our joy, our development as human beings in the overall evolvement of the world and the human? Is consciousness way beyond just our own personal feelings? Does it have yeah. a more universal connection that not only comes from us as an individual, but also comes from us as a community, as we feed off of each other, as an actor feeds off his, his audience when he's on, on the stage in a theatre? Yeah, I think you know, this, this could be debated, and I think it is being debated, but I do think that there are individualistic and common aspects to consciousness. And that what you do is actually contributing an individualistic aspect to that. So you're very much a piece of the whole and contributing to that piece. You, you, you are not just a bystander. It's, it's not a leaf of a tree that, that has no purpose. There is a purpose to every single human being in a way uh, producing consciousness now this consciousness may not necessarily be the same as wisdom or the same as knowledge so a person who is mentally not terribly gifted may very well have the capability of producing a high degree of consciousness in the way it really matters which we don't understand may I ask in that case we have seen orbs avail themselves through images, through the mm -hmm. wonderful technology of the digital camera. But are you absolutely assured as well that orbs have always been in existence? I think they always have. And I can tell you examples that have astonished me. In, For example, in art, over the over the centuries, you always find a, an artist here or, the, or there who has somehow loved to paint circles, or to include circles in his in his artwork, or to include um, kind of uh, spheres or things that look like spheres in his artwork. And we're now beginning to look at this art and ask ourselves. Is that was that an artist who actually could see them? Uh, maybe that was the case. I don't know. All right. So, what you're saying is that there are 
people who can actually see beyond the reality that we see in everyday life. Yes. There are people who have that gift. It's extraordinary, but I think there are people. Could I ask you what your position is when you come across those who don't really recognize the importance of these findings, who question yeah. these findings? And I had in my notes quoted Gary Schwartz from the Arizona right. University. How do you yourself, not, not necessarily as a scientist, but you yourself as a human being, approach those situations? It all depends. Now, I do know, uh, actually not personally, but I've heard Dr. Schwartz and I respect him highly. So he's definitely a person who would not make a statement lightly. And I think probably that he has changed his stance a little bit since he first came public with his analysis. I would say that there are so many indications that orbs are real and not just reflections at airborne particles or any any kind of artifacts that I can completely dismiss that argument. I'll give you some examples. The main argument that is made that orbs might just be artifactual is that of droplets or of an airborne particles and the only way uh, photographing those and the only way that that could be made is that these particles are very close to the camera just within a couple of inches or so from the objective lens. Now, if that's the case, then if you see an orb that is clearly far away, would automatically no longer be explained on that basis. A dust particle that is five feet away from the camera would have to be huge uh, in order to, to be seen that way. So, and we have seen in numerous occasions orbs that were eclipsed by objects between the camera and the orb. Let's say a head of a person or a wall or a tree or something so that the orbs were actually behind that object. So that's just one. One other example is sequences of pictures that you take. If in fact, yeah, many people see orb pictures they take one, one photograph and they get uh, no orb. They take another photo. They get a lot of orbs in that photo. And then they take a third one, all from the same area, and again none. And so it's a sequence of many, none, many. That would be very hard to explain on the basis of these dust particles. Why would they be in one instance and uh, a few seconds thereafter not, and then another few seconds thereafter, they would be there again. It, it makes little sense. Can you tell me the priority and the work through which you traveled at the beginning of this research in clarifying and eliminating, or a process of elimination, of the refraction of the optical errors of the mirror images or the images that you could get through the iris of the camera did you yeah. go to a lot of a, a great extent to eliminate those from the equation i kind of tried to eliminate every one of the arguments and there are maybe maybe 15 of those i just explained two so far <laughs> so uh, i've tried to eliminate all of these with simple either thought experiments or real experiments uh, to the extent that that was possible. And at some point then I was stuck with the reality that there are thousands 
of people like myself who have taken hundreds of thousands of photos of orbs and that just simply because of that and nothing else um, it, it is uh, it's almost to the degree of being preposterous that you could think that all of these would be falsifications I'd like to as we near the end of the program refer to the statement that you have on your website uh, from Mr. Cole Jung I shall not commit the fashionable stupidity of regarding everything I cannot explain as a fraud <laughs> what was the decision on your part to place that uh, as uh, so prominently uh, on your website I put that on there and actually this, this would be almost <laughs> like an, an entire hour's worth of, of talking about because I put this on there because in my mind, we are operating from an antiquated, from an outdated scientific research principle. The, for about, I don't know, the last 400 years or so, the Newtonian scientific principle, uh, or principle for, for scientific research has been uh, that of reproducibility. If you make an experiment, you have to be able to reproduce it. This is no longer a valid requirement if you do experiments that deal with the realm of consciousness, that include the realm of consciousness, that include the realm of speeds greater than the speed of light, that includes this new subtle energy realm that we are talking about. So this Newtonian way of conducting research is outmoded. And what we have to do is we have to see that in, when it comes to these fringes of physics experiments, the mind influences the experiments. It is no longer, we can no longer divorce the mind from the outcome of the experiment. There is an intermingling with the mind. And so we have to come up with a new definition of what nonsense is. Before, we said, nonsense is something that cannot be reproduced. If you show me something and, and, and you write down how you did it and someone else does it the same way, and if you can't find this, get the same result, that is nonsense. This can no longer be uh, tolerated. We have to come up with a new definition. This is actually the reason why, why I put that statement on there, just to, to simply to make people think that, um, you know, th we're not talking about um, stupidity. We're talking about, um, we're not talking about fraud. We, we're talking about something that is beyond all that. I'm terribly interested in that. From what I understand by your statement, that you're actually changing the way that scientists think. Scientists, whether they're involved in climatic, environmental, sustainability these days, with the big keyword, always tend to be not terribly 
well-versed at communicating. They tend to be in a box, like a lot of us are in what we yeah. do. But what you're saying is that because you have crossed over and still remain in these areas very well, from being a, a scientist, physicist, to being fluid and flexible in your thinking in, in, in this work with orbs, I think what you're saying is that scientists these days have to think and I don't like using this phrase, but think more out of the box by not just basing their theories and their outcome and their resolutions on theoretical formulas, but also using their minds in that to complement that work. And that, that has to be a very different approach for the scientist. That is the case. That is clearly the case. Now, in the vast majority of science, day-to-day -day science, this would not matter at all because we are not, that science is conducted in an area that is, that is unaffected, that is, that is away from the fringes, if I would say. But let me give you an example of my own field. My own field has been for decades that of imaging very, very tiny particles with electron microscopy and doing studies under controlled environments in microscopes tiny tiny particles now when it comes to these small dimensions literally atomic dimensions sometimes i now believe and this is this is really going out on a limb here i now believe that an outcome that i wanted to see for example a certain way of growth of a atoms uh, to in, into a small cluster of atoms and then a little particle that that might in fact have been subject to my own way of wanting to see it. That my mind in this was no longer an impartial third observer. It was actually becoming part of the experiment. Now, if you build a house or if you build a rocket to take people to the moon, that's a whole different story. You are, you are totally outside of those fringes. There you can devise a recipe then you could build it, and that will work. I'm, I'm talking about... Do you understand the difference? I do, and I'm, I'm considering here my response to it, that this transfer, this translation, this, this, this leap of faith that you have taken in your life as a, a quite amazing scientist into this world that you are involved in, and, and yet remaining in the scientific realm was created by this higher level of consciousness, uh, created as well by your past experiences from your childhood onwards, that, yes. that something in your mind, like a light going off, clicks and creates a new, completely different energy in your mind. Yes. Yes, I, I, I would have a hard time phrasing it any better. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with that. What is it in the final minutes now, uh, looking back over your career and your life, what are the greatest memories for you in all areas of life, looking back? Memories. Memories or maybe the greatest, the greatest aha experience. I mean, they're, they're, that would be a very difficult question to answer, but let me... Let me maybe answer it in, in, in terms of an aha experience. And that goes back to a question that you phrased 
way back at the beginning of our uh, conversation, and it had to do with our our exposure to uh, Dr. Rathbun, Harry and, and Amelia Rathbun, and one of the teachings, or one of the pet teachings of Harry Rathbun was uh, what his understanding of the great paradox, uh, which is which is of course something that that is uh, associated to Jesus, and it says something like this, if a person seeks to save his life, he will lose it, but if a person loses his life, he will find it. That's, of course, a something that we all kind of know. You've heard it, and many people, many of the listeners will have heard it in there. Yes, yes. Somehow in their upbringing. Now, the way Harry Rathman phrased that great paradox is something like this, and I hope I get it together right. If a person builds up walls around his psyche in an attempt to protect himself, if he tries to attain fulfillment by amassing worldly goods and fame and this kind of thing, if he sets his entire focus on physical wellness, he will, in the end, utterly fail. He will simply not, not, not attain what what the real purpose of his life is. But if he takes down these protective walls that he has built around his psyche and gives his true nature uh, of a compassionate and loving being a chance to emerge, and if he detaches from his preoccupations with worldly possessions and fame and physical wellness, be, wellness and all of this, so that his uh, function, that he can function as a compassionate and loving human being, and uh, that this will not be contaminated with non-essential preoccupations, then and only then will he bring forth a vibrant, conscious being that will live in eternity. And I perhaps believe that you may be defining very well the society that we work in and live in today that is very materially conscious and not considering the more simpler things that can make us real human beings? Yeah, I mean, you've, you've said it. I agree with that. Looking back now to your childhood, uh, last couple of minutes here, mm -hmm. uh, you, we, we did talk about your your childhood in Germany and uh, and your uh, move to the United States and the, the proud moment I'm sure of when you took on your uh, American citizenship and worked for this great country. My goodness me, what an amazing journey uh, and and nowhere near at an end with your work. Uh, possibly the greatest work of your your life is about to start as as with us all. What is it now that uh, you aim to achieve um, in not only the, the arena of orbs, but also in the wider world? Well, I would hope that, that we as a human species become more and more conscious, that we become uh, more loving, that we really understand why we're here, what we're, what we're here to learn, that we are in essence uh, spiritual beings that are here on a journey, on a short journey, with a specific mission to to accomplish, with something to accomplish for yourself, for ourselves, and that we just just learn all of that, that we learn to see in the other that same divine being 
uh, that uh, that we we all think everybody is. So uh, I, I would simply hope that we evolve into something more, something better than we are right now on this planet. How would possibly uh, that definition be? Uh, do you think? I know that's a very big question, but um, how how would you? expect the human race now to, to become more refined, more forgiving, uh, more loving, possibly, more, in a, possibly in a practical sense? Yes. Um, more loving means that it goes beyond what we would normally love. That it, it, it really means understanding. Uh, I cannot really love until I have learned to understand uh, that other person that is totally foreign to me, that I, that in a way I hate, that, that whose actions are totally incomprehensible to me. And there are many of those people in the world uh, that, that, that we currently classify as, as those. So, so that, we, that we begin to be more compassionate and, and understand their frame rather than our own. That we really respond to a situation rather than just react. If you, if you understand what, what, I, what I'm trying to say. I certainly do. And, uh, Very often we just react, but we are not responding. And uh, any final message uh, for particularly the younger generation listening to this as to how they could uh, look at your theories, uh, your evidence uh, in a closer manner and, and take on for themselves the huge possibilities that we have in this world. Yes. I, should, I, I would hope that this is, this is where we're developing into. Then we'll make it. Dr. Klaus Heinemann, it has been an incredible pleasure to share these two programs with you. Um, I've enjoyed it so much. I hope that you uh, likewise enjoyed um, our discussion. Thank you, I have. And for our listeners, I do hope that you have enjoyed this as well. You can gain information on this program and Dr. Klaus Heinemann at the uh, website, davidgibbons.org. There is a functional blog there if you would like to provide any questions or feedback uh, for either myself or Dr. Heinemann. Please do feel free and we'll be happy to respond to you. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 